Hi, my name is Patrick, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. And we'll just see how much speaking comes out of this voice today. Croaking. I'll croak at you. Too many flying on airplanes, and I really actually feel kind of drunk, folks. Everything, you know, everything everybody suggests I do to keep my voice... I mean, I'm a lightweight when it comes to booze or anything. So I feel like I'm going to tip over. Now, I know some of you guys like that feeling. I don't like it. I'll hold on. Oh, this is frustrating. I'm not supposed to talk in order to get over this. And I've been here now since last night, and I'm not talking. And that is not easy for someone like me, because I have things to say. But thank you for inviting us, and I can see this has become an annual affair, and it, and it looks like it's, it's good, it's joyous, and, you know, even with, I'm from, I'm from Southern California, down near San Diego, and we don't get the pretty foliage. We don't get the rain either much, but, uh, <laughs> and it really is fun to come here and to see it. It probably means nothing to you. You see it all the time, but it's beautiful, and, uh. So just to let you know, we appreciate that. And we were picked up at the airport very promptly and uh, delivered here by a couple of people who shifted their names so that one man is wearing the woman's name and vice versa. And uh, that's Greg and Sherry. And when they took us to a restaurant, the waitress just had to ask. <laughs> and I think, what do they, what do they think of us? Some, us program people sometimes, you know? We don't think about those things. Well, I, I think we have some members of AA here. I'm a member of Al-Anon, um, and, but I do, if there are some members of AA here, I just would like to congratulate you on having enough recovery to listen to an Al-Anon talk. Because <laughs> sometimes you hear things you don't want to hear. <laughs> and I'll shock you all by telling you that in Al-Anon we really don't talk about you. Most of the time. <laughs> um, we don't get away with it, let's put it that way. In Al-Anon, <clears throat> we try to look back at ourselves. And that's not easy to do. Because, you know, we look pretty good, those of us in Al-Anon. Because, you know, when you're living with an alcoholic, you mean, it doesn't take very much to look good. <laughs> Just... Stand around long enough and they'll do something screwy enough to make you. So, you see, when you come in, as my sponsor says, if you members of AA think it's hard to come in here as trying to get sober and work these steps, you ought to try it when you're already perfect. <laughs> I often like to think, though, that I'll tell you, I'm, you'll hear my husband speak in a little while, and if you're getting sleepy, I believe, believe me, you will wake up because he wakes you up. You see, the reason I married that man when I met him in college was because he could sing like Donald Duck. <laughs> and I still think that's one of the best reasons to marry anybody that I've ever heard. And there's usually not an Al-Anon in the room that doesn't agree with me. I'm kind of standing here thinking, when I said college, I realized how long ago that was. I think you have a couple of Ice Age people here. 
um, we will be married 50, how many? Seven years pretty soon. Yeah. Aren't I just amazing to stay with him, honestly? <laughs> and um, if you're one of the people that sits in an audience like I do, and you start trying to figure out how old somebody is by what they're talking, what they're saying, I'll tell you right up front, I'm 70-ish. I just had a birthday and I'm almost out of issues. <laughs> He's out of issues. Pretty good for an old guy, huh? Every once in a while he has a heart attack or something, just to remind us how. It's kind of funny in a way when he has a heart attack in our town because uh, we've been there so many years that uh, the nurses, I mean, most of the people are in AA and they all come like, flat, you know, in to see how he's doing. The ones, that, the ones that work there, I mean, not just the friends. Um, and it gets a little busy in his room. But it's kind of fun, you know, to go, we're in a small enough area where the AA and Al-Anon members, um, all, if they're in the hospital, they see his name on the board. <laughs> they come flying up to see how he's doing. And uh, that's one of the wonderful things about this program. Fascinates me, still to this day. I hope I never, I don't think I will, but I hope I never lose the, my, the awe I have for the strange, mysterious way this program works and how it just is there, how it's just there for us. I, um, I got into Al-Anon by the grace, good grace today, I'll say that, of his AA sponsor. Now this AA sponsor was not a man I would have picked to sponsor him. He was, he was a rude little electrician who drove around town like he owned the place and he, he had been a wino in downtown Oceanside, and he was, and he, they had taken a picture of Bill downtown when he was drinking, and he was, um, it, as an example of why we needed downtown redevelopment. <laughs> and you could see it was from his back, but you could tell he was leaning on a parking meter and he was relieving himself. <laughs> now you know the posture, you can tell. And this man had taken, and that had been on the front page of our local newspaper. The man had been sober eight years when I met him. And in his office, in the Oceanside Electric Company, he had framed that picture and put it up on the wall. And he was proud that they'd used him as the poster boy. That's the kind of man my husband had gotten me into. I have my little herbal tea. And just to tell you my frame of mind when I came in, I didn't even realize the miracle I was looking at when I saw that little man running his electric company and being busy in the town of Oceanside. And there was a picture of him eight years earlier as a downtown wino. I couldn't see the miracle. That's, that's who I was. I can't think of any better way to demonstrate to you about how I felt about this nonsense that now he had gotten us involved in. And particularly, the most important part is that Bill Blake, who had been, whose picture had been taken by the planning commission, 
was now the chairman of the Planning Commission in Oceanside. That's the story of Alcoholics Anonymous right there, but I couldn't see it. He had gone back into AA, my husband, he himself. One more time. Well, he hadn't impressed me on the other times, I'll tell you. Because, frankly, when he tried to stay sober, he was, he was harder to get along with than when he was drunk. And, boy, when he was drunk, he was hard to get along with. He was, a, he was angry. He was an angry man. And I, I didn't know what to do with that anger. Um, I had not been raised around anger. I'd been raised by a mother who was alcoholic, but she wasn't an angry lady. And she's funny as all get out, one of the funniest people I've ever met. And she didn't, she just didn't, wasn't angry. Um, I found out after I got here that she was a periodic alcoholic. I, I had no idea what that was till you told me. And uh, I think one of the reasons that I probably don't have the difficult backgrounds a lot of people in this room do is because there would be long periods of sobriety. Not white-knuckle sobriety. Happy-go-lucky. The fire bell went off, we chased the fire truck. That takes me back to another century, practically. And she was just loads of fun. And every once in a while, probably every five months or something like that, if I came home from school and I saw that she was drinking orange juice through a straw, I knew there was vodka in it. Now, why she drank it through a straw, I have no idea. And isn't that funny? I mean, little did she know that that was my clue. And maybe some of you alcoholics can explain that to me. Nobody has yet. Why? <laughs> but apparently it looked more innocent to her. But when I saw her drinking orange juice through a straw, I knew that she was drinking again, and I knew there'd be a period of time where I wouldn't bring my friends home. She didn't get um, mean, very rarely. She just got kind of sat in her little chair. And maybe The worst she did was make these midnight phone calls. What is it about alcoholics and midnight? <laughs> and we lived in this very small town called Las Gatas, California, which is located up near San Francisco. And everybody knew everybody. And she would, that was in our, we, our place, this is how old I am, we would pick the, up the receiver and say to the operator, I want 31W or something like that. So about midnight, she'd phone somebody. Well, the operator would say to her, her name was Pauline, Pauline, for heaven's sakes, go drink some coffee. Hazel's asleep. <laughs> and that was hard when you learned to keep an alcoholic a secret because we had to do that. I thought it was hard then. Wow, I had nothing. It was nothing compared to what I married because, believe me, everybody in town knew that Cliff Roach drank a little, drank a lot. He was loud and obscene and funny as hell. He, uh, he'd stand on the wall during the softball game when all the teachers, he's a teacher, he was when all the teachers, and you have to be dignified when you're a teacher. Try that one with alcoholism. So he'd stand, run around the wall while everybody's playing softball, 
yelling at the umpires and, oh, my God. And I would be following around behind him, down where people couldn't see me, trying to shut him up. <laughs> and, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> or, if he was very, very angry, I then would try to cheer him up. And I found out, after I came in here, that it isn't a good idea to try to cheer up an alcoholic. I remember a time he had gotten sober, and a bunch of us, and a bunch of AAs and me, were going from Oceanside up to Venice, California, that's 100 miles, to the backyard of a man named Clancy. Clancy Eye from up in the sky. Everybody said he's wonderful, you know, well. And we got stuck in traffic, which you always do in California. And everybody was griping. They were complaining. So I thought, well, I'll help this out. And I said to them all, let's see this, let's just see this as a gift of time. Well, you would have thought I ate their supper. <laughs> they, they did not want to be cheered up about the traffic. They wanted to complain. But I was here to cheer you up. I was here to help you out. That was my purpose in life. We had men in college in, um, as I said, had a great time. My mother loved him, no doubt you can figure that one out. And uh, so did my father, really. He was a little confused by him, but uh, my mom thought I'd picked a real winner here because they drank together, of course. And on a, on a few occasions, uh, the two of them would go, my mother and my husband would go shopping for everybody, and of course they'd bring us home whatever strange new liquor was on the market. And then whatever else came in jars like pickled pig's feet and, and no, no food, just stuff like that. And oh, they had the best time shopping. And uh, my dad would just shake his head. But we got married and um, he was a drama major. You may pick up on that when you hear him. That's a lot of fun. And I was a psychology major. Oh, God, I hate to admit that in a room like this. So, right away, I knew that I was here, to, I was supposed to help him in his group. Drama majors, if any of you don't know any, love to be paid attention to. And so they would have their dramatic problems, and, I, and they'd talk to me about them, and I would analyze them. <laughs> and they loved it. And I loved it because I, I was important, you see. We got married and um, we just laughed a lot and we had a great time a whole lot of times. I've often said being married to an alcoholic is like playing the slot machines, you know. They pay off just often enough. <laughs> Some years later, we had five children. Don't know how that happened, just did. And uh, thank God for them. Some years later, I was, because somebody needed to earn some extra money in that household, I began giving piano lessons. Now, I didn't know how to give piano lessons, but I'd learned how to play the piano. So I gave piano lessons. And I don't know whether I was good at piano or whether nobody... There were, or they just needed piano teachers in Oceanside 
at that time because when I came into Al-Anon, I was giving 37 piano lessons a week. Now, you're supposed to go, oh, you know, good, very good. And the reason I remember that is because every single morning when he left for school, I'd say, I've been given 37 piano lessons a week just so we can make ends meet, which they never did, of course, you know that. But there would be those times, and I was trying to have a dignified piano studio in my living room. And it's hard when you're married to somebody like him because you never knew what was going to happen next. He liked to surf in those days, and he would drive to Mexico, which is close to where we live. At one time, he had purchased a Mexican art object. It was a carving of a man's hand with a particular finger extended. (laughs) And he said, this is my philosophy of life. And I'm going to put it on your piano. (laughs) So because I had lost track of my choices, which is one of the many common messages we get in Al-Anon, is we lost track of our choices. I didn't dare take that off my piano, but I didn't dare leave it there when the students were coming. So I would snatch it off the piano and hide it give my lessons and put it back so he wouldn't realize that I had done that because he would be mad. And sure enough, one day one of the parents said, can I come in and watch my child's lesson? And I said, sure. And uh, I realized looking at her that she wasn't watching their child. She was looking at the Mexican art object, which I had failed to get off the piano. And I... uh, I never saw her again or her kid. She was the wife of the Baptist minister. So those moments would happen, but then there'd be those moments when the slot machine would pay off. Because in our house, the way it was situated, the living room had a door going into the dining room and the kitchen area, and another door that went into the hallway and the bedrooms. And one time I had a child who was playing a little song called humoresque, if you know anything about music. It's a nice, dancey little number. And this child's playing away. And out of one, now the child's back is to the room. Out of one doorway comes my husband with a red rose in his mouth and wearing a little pair of shorts with little red devils on them, (laughs) which I had given him. And he went dancing across the room to humoresque. Now, how do you stay mad? (laughs) He could get me every time, every time. The children um, had reached teenage, three of them had reached teenage years. This is in the late 60s. Um, I came into Al-Anon on St. Patrick's Day of 1970, which is God's sense of humor, because I married a member of the CIA, you know, Catholic, Irish, alcoholic. And um, I didn't know anything about that stuff before. So in Southern California, in the late 60s, there were, there were some little goodies out on the streets for the kids to help them through life. 
and some of them were taking those things. Meanwhile, his drinking is progressing, of course, and meanwhile, I'm trying to keep a dignified family. Oh, and we lived in a cul-de-sac where we raised all the kids, and the kids all knew each other. It was a nice place to raise kids. And my children began, well, first of all, they began smelling musty. I thought that they weren't washing their hair or something until I realized how easy going they were when they smelled musty. They just, sure, man, anything you want. They'd agree to everything. And I knew nothing about pot in those days, nothing. I said, these kids, this is really interesting. And then I found those little white tablets with a cross on them. And uh, I discovered that when I found those around the house, they were busy. And they would do everything. Boy, they'd clean my car and wash the cupboards and all night long. And then the next morning, they'd crash. They, they couldn't go to school. They were too worn out. And I, you know, I had a friend on the police force. And I would run down with some of these little things I would find, like quaaludes, and I'd say, Ron, what are they taking now? And he would tell me what it was. And he would tell me the antidote in case they overdosed. I, you know, later, when I was talking to the kids about this, I said, Mom, you narked on us. Well, whatever, <laughs> you know. And I think about it later. I think, you know, this, that was weird to do that, to go to a police detective and show him what my kids were doing. Now, all this while, I'm discovering what these kids are doing. Now, we also had other people living with us. We still look back and wonder how that happened. It seems our house, I guess, was better than theirs. There were lots of people in our house. Besides the five kids, my dad had died, and my, my husband had invited my mother to come live with us. Thank, and I thank him to this day for that, because um, he was wonderful with her. And I can tell you, uh, a lot of people don't get to have that experience. But he was wonderful with her. And they had something in common, of course. But she was a lot of fun, and she loved living there. She loved living there. Uh, well, yeah, because there was a party going on every day. And the kids loved her. The kids in the neighborhood loved her. Everybody loved little Pauline. Now, Pauline was four foot ten, and she was on a walker. She was Because she'd fallen and broken her hip, and she couldn't remember how that happened. She thought it was odd, it had never hurt. And I, just to show you where I was with my little progression here, was um, hauling her to the physical therapist, listening carefully to what her exercises should be. He would say to her, now you do five of these for one week, and then you do ten the next week. Well, being an alcoholic lady, she would come home and do all 50. <laughs> Look at the hits, you all know. And then, of course, she couldn't walked for a month. <laughs> what I did was kept taking her back. There's something in our literature that says doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results is a form of insanity. And I kept taking her back because this time she might get it. But she was happy about the whole thing. Well, she was still a periodic drinker, but she had, in the midst of her injuries, discovered Darvon, 
So she had a little help in between times. Meanwhile, my husband, who has a cousin who is a doctor, probably he belonged in this program, the AA program, we think, <laughs> um, he would prescribe things to help, him, to help him relax. In fact, it was called Relaximin. I don't know if anybody's old enough to know that there was a medication called Relaximin. Isn't that a riot? So be, and so he was a daily drinker by then, but then he became a periodic pillhead. And then my mom was, of course, a, a daily pillhead and a periodic drinker. And my kids, some of them, were just kind of taking whatever floated their way. And it did. <laughs> and I was just trying so hard to hold that whole thing together. I remember... Um, well, I would sit there in my living room giving piano lessons. And I would have prepared dinner for this mob, which was all waiting for them, because they have to give piano lessons after school. And they would come home, and I'd always think, boy, they sure ate I mean, I'd made enough for three meals, and it'd be gone. Well, part of it was because they smelled musty. <laughs> and part of it was because the other, all the neighborhood kids were there. But that's in the back, and I couldn't see one of my sons had decided that it would be worthwhile to make a little money off of some of the drugs that were around, so he had a very high grade of hashish that he was selling, and he got busted for it in high school. And uh, so he had a nice little business going out the back door. So every half hour in the front door comes a piano student, and about every half hour in the back door comes one of his sales. And I could sit there in that living room. I mean, I developed some real skills on my way here. I would sit in my living room, and I could tell you exactly how many sales David was making out the back door. I could tell you if the kid made a mistake on the piano. And I could tell you all our bedrooms were lined up in a row. And I could tell you which of the girls' bedroom windows was being opened. There were some of their boyfriends had gotten in the habit of coming in the windows <laughs> in broad daylight. And they didn't need to. They could come in, you know, the back door. Boy, I mean, I could tell you everything. Meanwhile, he would have come home from school with his teacher friends. And if you know, and you probably, some of you have noticed that alcoholics attract alcoholics. So we had this middle of the house with the kitchen and the dining room, and my mother, of course, and the gathering of after-school teachers making margaritas, three at a time. And have you ever heard a blender when it's on there wrong? Because they get kind of sloshed, and they put it on there crooked. Oh, my God, the noise. And I could tell you which margarita they were on, which batch. And I, actually, those, those skills came in handy later in my life when I had a, a job situation where I was required to keep track of a whole lot of people. Actually, it was a child abuse center, and I, was, I could supervise and tell you where everybody was and what they were doing. And the executive director one time said to me, how do you do that? You stand at one end of this place, and you can say what everybody's doing. Well, I almost started to tell her, well, you marry an alcoholic, see, and then you have these kids. But I thought probably that wasn't best thing to tell her. In the midst of the ups and downs, there was always so much fun, always laughter, um, 
And then there were those times that were so frightening. And we all know about them. When he went to AA again, as I said, I wasn't impressed. He'd been terrible when he went before. The kids used to say, get him a drink for God's sakes. He was a nervous wreck. Now you got to know at that time I didn't understand alcoholism. I didn't understand the pain it was for an alcoholic to be trying to go without alcohol. And my mother, meanwhile, of course, kept right on drinking. So I didn't have compassion. I did know that I, I really did know that my mom would not have have done and said and gotten drunk like that if she could help it. And the reason I could see the difference with her and him is because she was so good-natured and nice. And I just, and she was a fine lady. And I just knew she wouldn't be doing that on purpose. So something there was somehow telling me, there's something about this alcohol. But I didn't really understand it until I got here. Now, he was so darn mad all the time that I just blamed it on that. And it was easy to blame him for anything. And that's pretty handy for any of you who want to use that. I also would, had gotten in the habit of getting, putting him on his good little guilt trips. I did learn that at my mother's knee. I did learn after she'd been on a binge that I could get away with just about anything because I knew how to use that guilt, that morning after guilt. And I frankly learned it from my father because I watched him do it. Now, I'm not proud that I did that. I'm not proud that I carried that on into my marriage. But that's what I did because somehow I had to make that person recognize what they were doing. And guilt was the way you did it. He would, I was in charge of the money, <laughs> which is a joke. Because if you're in charge of the money, that means you have to make ends meet. While well, he goes in charges at the liquor store. But I, he would, at the, he's a school teacher, they get paid once a month. At the end of the month, towards the end, we'd be getting low on money, and he would want to buy his little bottle. He would buy a half pint of vodka, because <laughs> he was going to control his drinking. And uh, you know what that means. <laughs> and uh, it was $1.79 or something like that back then in the 1960s. And he would say, have we got a couple bucks for me to have some booze? I want to buy a bottle. And I, I would give it to him, always did, because I needed him to feel beholden to me. But I always made him do his dance. I would say, well, that means we won't be able to buy the baseball glove for David. All those kind of things that, hope, that would make him feel, recognize what he was doing to our family. When I didn't understand that already, as an alcoholic who couldn't stop drinking, he was already filled with guilt. He didn't need any more. But that's what I did. And then those children began getting in a little bit of trouble. And, in, and then they, oh, I, a couple of the kids that came, and they lived, when I say other kids live with us, they lived with us. They didn't stay overnight. They moved in. And sometimes we knew why. A one girl, her, father, her mother had a stroke, and her father was out on the streets. He was an alcoholic of all things. And she moved in and lived with us for a whole year. And another girl, her, par her parents lived on a boat at the Oceanside Harbor. And they decided, just before her senior year, 
in high school, they decided to take a cruise around the world, and they didn't care what happened to her. Well, she came to live with us. I liked her. Didn't you like her? Just not too long ago, there were a couple of guys. Uh, not too long ago, I was talking to my youngest daughter, and she said, remember, Mom, when Mike was living with us? And I said, Mike who? <laughs> and then she re related a few things. said, oh, my God, how is Mike? <laughs> you know, after all these years. But the day came when we had one argument too many. It's kind of interesting, too, because it wasn't any different than any of the others. It wasn't like a great big explosion. Um, I always, I think of this compared to when I hear alcoholics talk about their last drink was a wimpy little glass of wine. <laughs> if they'd known it was their last drink, they would have done better than that. Because all it was was just a little disagreement. He was angry at a child, one time too many, and it was the end for me. And I told him to stop what he was doing. And he said what he's always said. He said his lines. You know how we get our lines? Our script is written. He said, well, I just better move out. Now, my line had always been, that's no way to solve problems. We solve them by talking about them. I'm a psychology member, remember? Maybe. Okay, major. Now, talking about them meant me standing in my talking position and him sitting on the morning after in his listening position. But I didn't say that this time. This time, I said, good idea. Time to move out. And he did. Now, for the, any Al-Anons here who are wondering how to get rid of their drinking husbands, <laughs> good luck. I was just lucky. <laughs> That's what we talk about at Al-Anon meeting. And he did. He moved out. And this time, he went back into AA with this crazy little guy that he got for a sponsor. And the crazy little guy kept, he wasn't living at home, Cliff wasn't, so he kept, this crazy little Bill Blake kept running in my house. He didn't knock on the door or anything, he was rude. And he'd be standing by me at the sink, all of a sudden there he'd be, handing me literature about some place called Al-Anon. And I'd look at it and I'd say, thank you, Bill, but I was a psychology major. And it's his problem. That went on for a couple months. And then one day, Bill didn't have any literature with him. And that sneaky little alcoholic, who I came to love, had figured me out. He sat down very quietly with me. And he said, Pat, there's a... I checked out the Al-Anon meeting in Oceanside. We had one. And I think they could use your help. That was on St. Patrick's Day of 1970 and I was at a meeting that night and I came in to help you and you loving Al-Anons didn't tell me anything differently as a matter of fact you said oh we really need you <laughs> you know when we talk to newcomers and say you are the most important person in the room that is what I thought you meant <laughs> I thought oh you recognize my talents because I, I could organize anything. Believe me, I could organize anything. And I began helping you. And that's truly what kept me coming. So to me, it doesn't matter why I came into Al-Anon or why anybody does. It doesn't matter what my motives are. If I do the thing, if I end up doing the thing that I need to do, 
And that's what I did. Now, there was a lady there named Millie. Old Millie, we called her. Not to her face. <laughs> she, after a couple of weeks, she brought me a big letter M, like a varsity letter. She said, here, this is yours. I've decided you're a member of the Varsity Martyr Club. <laughs> My feelings were a little hurt. But it was true, I had made many, many sacrifices for that family. And um, she claimed she couldn't drive. And she needed me to drive her to San Diego, which is 30 miles down the coast. Because in San Diego, the Al-Anons in 1970 were forming what we call intergroup, what Al-Anons most places call AIS, but it's the same thing. They were putting together a board of directors, and Millie was experienced with some kind of bylaws. So I drove her with nothing in mind except to be shown off that I could do this for her. Thank God she had me. Sitting in that meeting, I had no role to play because they were talking about getting this thing going and I didn't know much about that. But I'd been coming here for a while and I'd been going to AA meetings with Cliff, mainly to make sure he heard what he was supposed to hear. And I... They began arguing with each other. Now, some of you people who do the service work, those people who put this on, for example, you do a lot of work. And some of you may know that when you do that kind of thing, sometimes you have little disagreements about how something should be done. I do it too. Not in a meeting, but in a service meeting. I have a cause, and I know the right way to do it. Well, this is what they were doing, and they were arguing with each other, and they were rude, and I'd never seen that happen. One of the women said, let's stop here. Listen to us. We're not putting principles above personalities. And those people stopped, and they said the serenity prayer, and they began again. And I watched that wonderful 12th tradition at work. I felt it in my soul and I knew something very spiritually had just happened to me. I didn't analyze it, which is what I had a habit of doing. I just felt it and I thought, wow, this is something. Now God in his wisdom, I still get very moved when I talk about that because it was a moment of clarity to me. However, God in his wisdom <laughs> saw to it that I needed to uh, put that to use very short, shortly, short memory span. And when I went home that day, my 14-year-old daughter, who wanted to go play with the 21-year-olds, that's what she liked to do that, <laughs> and I was saying no to her, and she screamed at me, I hate you. And I'd never had a kid say that to me. And I, I said, much to my surprise, it's more important for me to like myself than it is for you to like me. And I'm going to be a responsible mother. And the answer is no, go. And I knew what I was doing. I knew I was taking that principle that I had just watched in action. And I was bringing it into my home. I can't begin. You've, I'm sure most of you have had moments where you just knew that you weren't doing it yourself that you were getting some help. And it was through this program in a higher power. 
Today she says, boy, you sure went into neutral. <laughs> Those kids, well, they grew up. <laughs> and they didn't always do it the way we thought they should. Um, I can tell you today three of them are members of Alcoholics Anonymous out of those five. The oldest one, a girl, is a member of Al-Anon. The oldest kid in most uh, alcoholic families, believe me, needs Al-Anon, girl or boy. And you know, I haven't gone through any more than any of the rest of you have. We'd been coming here for a while, and my mother hadn't been drinking because she could do that. And then she said, to me one day. There was no booze in the house. Cliff had moved back in. Well, I don't think there was any booze. The kids might have had some in the back room, but, you know, it wasn't in the refrigerator anymore. And um, uh, the time had come where she needed to drink again because she needed to do that. And she said to me, Pat, you know, we've been working hard. How about if we get a bottle of wine and relax? Now, I had had two ways of dealing with my mother and her drinking. One was to pretend like it was no big deal. Sure, you know, act like that's no problem. And the other was to scold her. And I didn't do either of those because I'd been coming here. Instead, I said to my surprise, Mom, I can't drink with you. The last time you drank, you had a stroke, and the doctor told me you might not live through another one, and I can't be the one to drink with you. But I love you. She could get her own booze, by the way. She was perfectly capable of getting her own booze. You're welcome to go to AA with us, and you're welcome to go ahead and drink. I just can't join you. My mom didn't go to AA, and my mom didn't drink. My mom took her own life two days later. Due to the love and the caring of AA people, men and women, I learned to understand what was happening with her. You AA people explained to me, especially Bill and his wife, Margie, who was AA. This is a woman who loved where she lived. She didn't want to live anywhere else. Everybody loved her. Here was a woman who had moved into a house full of party people. Here was a woman who denied having a problem. For her to drink in that situation would be making a statement that she had a problem. This is the way you explained it to me. And I never once felt guilty that my mom, I felt very sad that my mom chose that route. There was, for her, she couldn't see drinking in that household the way things were, with AA people running in and out. Think in terms of going to AA. And so she did what, what she felt was her way out, which was to die. That was a hard lesson to learn about alcoholism. I hope most people don't have to learn it certainly that early. But it was a lesson that helped me See how powerless I was. The kids did their tricks. <laughs> the daughter that's now in AA, her first baby was born way too early. She lived six weeks. Little Sarah and she died because my daughter was not able to keep her body clean and sober during that pregnancy. 
And then she had another baby who was also born too soon. He's okay today. But one more time, she couldn't keep her body clean and sober. One of the hardest things I ever did was sit in the hospital with that little guy, three years old, struggling with his breathing, struggling with the kind of things that happen to a baby who's born from a mother who's done that. Watching my daughter, who knew, who knew why this trouble was there, be so in pain at what she had done, she would have to leave. She would say, Mom, I need to go take a walk. And what she needed, of course, was to smoke a joint or to have a drink. But I've been coming to you, and I understood. And my heart just went out to her. But I couldn't help her. I was powerless to help her. She had to help herself. She had to know it herself. And she did, in time, she came to Alcoholics Anonymous. There's no guarantees when somebody gets sober. She was sober 11 years and got hooked on Vicodin because of a bad back. And that's a fun thing to watch, I'll tell you, whoopee. And um, eventually came back to AA and she's been sober now for six years again. No guarantees, a day at a time. So today I enjoy those kids each day each, every day they have a sobriety. The youngest son, who's sober now, <laughs> you never know how somebody's going to get sober. I always think I can help him, you know. He, uh, he came home one night. He was, supposed, he was coming home for work. His, his little wife had cooked what he'd requested for dinner. She was pregnant with her second child. He came in at one o'clock. He hadn't made it home. And he looked at at his dinner all in aluminum foil. In those days, we didn't have microwaves because he's got almost 20 years sobriety now. And he looked at that, and he went, and he looked at his little pregnant wife sleeping, and he looked at his son. And he went and looked at the mirror, and he said to himself, you're a jerk. <laughs> Cut it out. And he stopped. He went to AA. Now, how do you, how do you guess how somebody's going to... I don't get to call it. I don't get to say, if this would happen, this will make it. Now that oldest one, the hashish salesman. Um, actually, you know, in one of the things we learned now and on is to, when I came in, we called it release with love. Now they call it detachment. I don't like that. And I've been here long enough to not like something. But I don't want to. Release with love. He, um, one of the easiest ways to release a kid who's doing that stuff with love is if they move 8,000 miles away. <laughs> David had, had majored in, he finished his bachelor's degree in, get this, agriculture. <laughs> and he decided to go into Peace Corps before he went to graduate school. And he went to Columbia. They won't let the Peace Corps go there anymore, but they did them. <laughs> I mean, is that God's sense of humor? And, you know, he's one of those alcoholics that lands on his feet like a cat. He could just keep drinking and achieving and drinking and achieving and right up the ladder. He was in Hawaii. He, he, he's, um, his, he's a coffee grower. <laughs> I think this stuff is legal. I really do. <laughs> he doesn't really grow the coffee now, but he, 
or he grew after he finished his graduate school. He put together a big coffee coffee crop over in Maui. They hadn't had one before, and he um, they tested they began testing them over there for for drugs in his company. And he was a vice president or something. He didn't think he was going to test it, <laughs> but he, they called. Him. He didn't go. Then he had to go without pot for a while. And so I said to him one time, David, after he was sober, I said, David, do you think, uh, do you, think you were periodic like your, my mom? And he says, oh, only when I tried to quit drinking. <laughs> and I thought, but you know, then, but see, the thing is he quit smoking pot because he didn't want to lose his job, but then the drinking really increased. And one time he phoned us, <laughs> all excited about a great promotion he'd gotten. And instead of being, we didn't tell him, but instead of being excited, we just kind of wished he'd gotten a DUI because all those promotions were going to kill him. And I bet you have people in your life like that. They were going to kill him because he just kept doing better. The time came, though, when he, um, he, he would, he'd gone in and out of AA a little bit. And it, it, he travels a lot in his work. And he happened to be traveling just one hour up the road from us in a town called Anaheim. He was in charge of a big coffee convention they were putting on. And my granddaughter was with him because he had been sober a little while. So his wife had allowed her to come so she could go to Disneyland. Well, things went wrong. And my daughter located him in an emergency room. The emergency room doctor told my daughter, I don't think he's going to pull through his... His alcohol level is 0.40. It kills a lot of people. So my daughter and I, my little alcoholic daughter and I, got in the car and we drove up. And I went up to say goodbye to my son. Because I, I know that alcohol, he, he would go for days or weeks without drinking and then he'd go down. He'd go through two or three bottles in a 24-hour period. And I fully expected that I was going to lose that boy. And um, as you, he didn't die, I leaned over him and I said, David, I'm just so sorry that you have to do this. It was kind of interesting. He eventually got himself home and, and uh, he's been sober since then. But he emailed me and he says, boy, mom, I hope I never see that look on your face again. So I said, I hope you don't either. <laughs> But one more time, I believe I was ready to accept what I thought was inevitable because you'd given me the tools to do that. Life is in session when we get in this program. It doesn't stop. We've had, like most of you, stuff happens. We had a hard year last year in the family. We got a big family and we have grandchildren and we have great-grandchildren. And some of them bother to get married and some don't. Whatever. And, um, and they're, they're great. They're just great. But there's a bunch of them, you know. And when you have a bunch of people in your life that you care about, things happen. And our youngest daughter, who um, is such a dear, she's, uh, she had tried and tried and tried to get pregnant and wasn't able to. Finally, they tried in vitro. And she conceived twins. And they were born about two weeks to her. So we lost those babies. And she's the baby of our family. And everybody's just... And 
So they decided to go through that again, which I think takes a lot of courage. And this time, she's now seven and a half months pregnant. And believe me, if she had started something before I came here, I wouldn't have come. (laughs) So those babies will be okay when they're born. Just with the, you know, you you know how to be cautiously optimistic. It's like when somebody gets newly sober or somebody is kind of new in Al-Anon and they, they really get it and they're just doing the right thing and you're all excited. You get that. I think I, I do anyway. I, I feel cautiously optimistic because over enough time we see enough people who don't get it for whatever reason. And we're so grateful for those who do. And sometimes, you know, the dark years, and as the big book says, you know, our past will be our greatest asset. Those dark years pay off so much. In my case, is I really believe today, because we've had a lot of ups and downs, my grandson was terribly injured, 14 years old, in a bad accident uh, the first part of the year. Lots of trips to physical therapists, lots of bones broken and plastic surgery and not easy on a 14-year-old to go around with scars all over him. And um, no matter what happens, I really know, I really believe today, I'll be okay. I don't have to know whether you'll be okay. I hope you are. I only have to know that I'll be okay. And I know that I've learned here that most every decision I make, if I make the decision based on what's right for me in my heart, in my Al-Anon heart, after talking to my sponsor, and after making sure I'm not screwy, too screwy anyway, if I make the decision based on what's right for me, it's going to be right for the people I care about. I really believe that today. And sometimes the people I care about don't feel that way. (laughs) Sometimes it doesn't look like that's what's happening. But I know that if I do that, with Al-Anon love, if I release with love, that it'll be right for the people in my, in my life. Because I've gotten lots of chances to find out. If you're new, you may, may or may not relate. <laughs> you know, who knows what somebody's going to relate to. I could just say to you that if you can just stick around anyway, I don't care what your reason is. Mine was the worst of reasons. Because I always, we have a little say, talks about being uh, arrogant, smug, self-righteous, and dominating. That's in our literature. That's a little weapon for you AA people. It's a little, little pamphlet. Arrogant, smug, self-righteous, and dominating. That's exactly the way I came in here. Doesn't matter. Just be in here. Eventually, it's going to rub off. When I was given piano lessons, all those years ago when things were dark. I was looking at the foliage. We lived in a little place one time for a few years in California, one of the few places that where the trees changed color. And um, I had a reason to go back there about 20 years later, actually to give an Al-Anon talk, which I thought was kind of humorous because, well, there's reasons for that. But and my daughter was with me, the daughter that lived there when I, when we, she was seven then. And it was in the fall. And I said, oh my gosh, look what's happened here in Manteca is the name of the town. Look what's happened. The trees are all changing color now. And she said, well, Mom, they always did. 
I said, not when we were here. What was I? I couldn't see the colors. When I was giving piano lessons, I used to, there was a little kid one time said to me, Miss Roach, what's that light, tiny little note there? Well, if you know anything about music, you know that it's a grace note. And a grace note is for free. It gets no count. You just slip it in there. It dresses it up. A tiny little note comes before the main note. If you're keeping the beat, it just makes a little flowery look to it. And he said to me, what's that little tiny note for? And I said, oh, just ignore that. That's where I was then, ignoring the grace notes. And I want to tell you what Eleanor has given me and the AA people, and especially the AA women. I don't miss the grace notes today, I'll tell you. There always are grace notes. Always are grace notes. All I have to do is be still. Just be still and they'll be. Thank you very much for inviting us.